Hey everyone, Jenna here from the Democracy Works team. We are going to continue our holiday break this week, uh, rebroadcasting an episode that's a little bit farther back in the Democracy Works back catalog. It originally aired in the early fall of 2018 and is an interview with Lara Putnam, who is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, also the daughter of Robert Putnam, author of Bowling Alone. You hear Michael and Chris mention him uh, on the show quite a bit. But we, we talked with Lara about an article uh, at the time was in the Democracy Journal that she co-authored with Theta Scotchpole all about how middle America is rebooting democracy. That was the title of the article, Middle America Reboots Democracy. And it looked at um, grassroots organizing in suburban parts of western Pennsylvania um, between November of 2016 and early 2018. So the, the months between um, President Trump's election and the, the midterms of 2018. And it's worth revisiting for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because that uh, that article, Middle America Reboots Democracy, is now part of a new book just out from Oxford University Press called Upending American Politics. Um, it is edited by Theta Scotchpole and Caroline Turvo. We're actually going to have Theta on the show here in, in a couple of weeks to, to talk more about it. But uh, the link for the book is in the show notes. You can find uh, Lara's article in there. Um, it's also, I think, important to think about this grassroots movement as we head toward 2020. I think the, you know, kind of all eyes are on these suburban districts. Are they going to vote for President Trump? Are they going to support the, the Democratic candidate, can the momentum that the Democratic Party gained in the midterms of 2018 carry forward to 2020? Um, All of these are, are very interesting questions and they're all things that we will be sure to talk more about in the coming year on this show. But as a way to set the stage for that, I think this conversation with Lara is particularly useful. So again, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, we will be back with new episodes shortly. But in the meantime, please enjoy this conversation about Middle America Rebooting Democracy with Lara Putnam. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we're joined for the interview by Lara Putnam, chair of the history department at the University of Pittsburgh and co-author with Theta Scotchpole, a very well-known sociologist and political scientist, uh, of an article called America Reboots Democracy in in, uh, a journal called the Democracy Journal. Yeah, Middle America Reboots Democracy. Middle America America Reboots, Mm -hmm. an important distinction. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Because this is about kind of the populism outside of the, you know, coastal elites. What's what's going on in these uh, collar counties, these suburbs, uh, and, and out in rural America, too. Right. I mean, one thing that caught our attention about this article, uh, in addition to the fact that it's really interesting and two, two really interesting authors, the way it follows up on our interview from last week with Selena Zito. Yeah, it really is interesting, the distinctions, the differences, the similarities, and how both of these pieces or both yeah both her book and this article speak to just this kind of populist dynamism that's around in America right now right like selena lara kind of looks around herself in western pennsylvania which is kind of what selena was doing a little bit more out in middle out in the rest of the country in uh, selena's case um at people that they each kind of describe, you'll hear in the interview today, at, at people like themselves mm-hmm. in important ways. 
and uh, try to understand what they're up to politically in this age or, you know, how they construe democratic politics. Well, and just how um, the the condition of American society right now has activated people that weren't activated before, right. driven them into political action and engagement in a way that they weren't before, and how um, that what drives that reaction and how different it is and how that reaction manifests itself. It's it's just really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, both in, in their own ways in response to uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the people Selena is talking about last week um, in support of Donald Trump and helped to elect Donald Trump. She focused on these Obama to uh, Trump districts. And uh, Lara on everything that's sprung, not everything, but on what has sprung up in these same many of the same areas mm-hmm. uh, in response to in response to Donald Trump, really beginning uh, with the women's march. Right. I mean, actually, I think there are some pretty important distinctions between the areas they're talking about. Well, we can get into that. Yes. But we should we should we should bring on bringing them on and have this interview. Okay. Very good. This is Jenna Spinelli from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, here today with Lara Putnam, who is a, a professor and chair of the history department at the, the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and um, the author of an article called uh, Middle America Reboots Democracy, which is out in the Democracy Journal. Um, so Lara, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so you are a history professor, as I just said. Um, how did you come to, to write about a political movement? So in the uh, in the wake of the November 2016 election, I, like a lot of people, uh, looked around at what was happening locally, uh, politically, trying to figure out what, what can I do to make an impact? What can I do to end? So I began looking not just uh, in my own neighborhood in the city of Pittsburgh, but in the surrounding uh, suburbs. I, I actually am in a state senate district that was gerrymandered to include a tiny little chunk of the city of Pittsburgh and then a whole range of the northern suburbs and sort of river towns along uh, moving north. And so my, um, you know, uh, in, in that piece of my personal political looking, I that took me out into areas that I hadn't spent a lot of time in. And my presumption, based on what national reporting had led me to believe about what blue state America looks like or what red America looks like, was that you'd have a lot of energy and enthusiasm and action around progressive politics or uh, around the Democratic Party in the city and not out in the suburbs. But what I found was actually that I, I was missing the real story, that, was, that what I was seeing happen in the North Hills and beyond as I started looking in the South Hills, in Beaver County, in Washington County, um, and, and really outside of these metropolitan blue spaces was a resurgence of local organizing was people taking, uh, stepping forward and sort of taking into their own hands the creation of grassroots groups, sometimes linked to the Democratic Party explicitly, sometimes not so much. Um, and that wasn't getting covered in – or it wasn't getting covered as the kind of radical shift that I knew it to be. And here's where I then sort of kicked into historian gear because I knew that there's a lot of social science literature and historical literature about just how incredibly powerfully important local face-to-face groups are. And all of the large-scale trends in the United States over the last half century have basically been the decay of face-to-face local connections. Um, and in particular, those have been have become increasingly uh, class-segregated, so the number of of personal connections, whether formal or informal, that cut across lines of education or lines of class, 
uh, has decayed, and the decay of of working of of sort of face to face groups and and joining has been particularly Im- impactful in the communities that have been hardest hit by economic change. It's the same pattern as the you know the opioid epidemic, for instance. If you map out that that uh, train of um, dis- social disengagement. And then that makes it that much harder. It's both a sort of cause and effect, right? If the historians will always tell you complicated stories in which everything affects everything. So there's both a cause and effect in, in people losing the kinds of uh, informal social ties that have been so supportive and then feeling increasingly disempowered and less um, having less time and energy and ability and resources to engage in things like finding political voice. So, so face-to-face groups, although they can look small, and, and sometimes don't even look that political, have a really big political impact. Their absence has a big political impact. Their presence has a big political impact. So what what does does Middle America mean and kind of your, your definition or, or what you, you came to as a, as a result of working on this article? What does it look like to you? So the, there, there's a variety of different slightly over, overlapping patterns going on here. Um, but what's clear is that it's particularly women who are stepping in, and it's women who've already been involved in political life within their communities who are stepping in and taking a hands-on role in creating new political groups, sort of grassroots political groups. So it's often the classic picture would be either you know a retired woman who had always been both professionally active and involved in the PTO in her children's schools, who's now like feverishly organizing a grassroots group to get her. Republican member of Congress voted out, um, and and so the when I say when when and when when Theda Scotchpal and I refer to Middle America, part of what we're referring to is the fact that these groups are growing fastest and um, have become most intense in places that are outside of the classic sort of coastal metropolitan image of where people think of the Democratic quote unquote base as sitting. So people think of the Democratic base as sitting, you know, in a not just within a place like Allegheny County in, in um, southwest Pennsylvania, but in the city of Pittsburgh in particular, mm-hmm. or in um, you know the, the East Coast cities um, and in the West Coast. That's not really what college-educated women look like in most of America. In most of America, we're talking about you know, kindergarten teachers. We're talking about nurses. For sure, we're talking about nurses. Uh, we're talking about you know, educators, women in the helping professions, or women retired from the helping professions. And part of what happened is that in the wake of Trump's election, a, a minority of people, but a really vocal and impassioned and practical and skilled and effective minority of people, stepped forward and said, we, we have to make change. And where are we going to do this? Well, we're concerned about national trends that we're seeing. This does not look like the America that we wanted to live in. This is not, people will say over and over, this isn't the America I want to hand to my grandchildren. So, but, but people find ways of acting locally. Whether that's so creating these local grassroots groups in purple suburbs, in college towns, in red districts, um, and in places that that haven't been seen as sort of the epicenter of the democratic base. Sure, and and so you also make the the point that these these groups are also largely getting getting ignored by by media coverage. It, it feels like in in some ways we are um, in this effort to understand each other, failing to kind of really have those, those as you said, face-to-face interactions. And we're trying to, like, look for all of these stereotypes maybe at the, at the exact time that, that maybe we're doing the opposite of that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, part of what happens is that there's a national media which is really obsessed with candidates. Um, 
that's and and you can see that, for instance, in you know even in the last few weeks, and when people are talking about politics and trying to discern you know political swings, it's often about the candidate. There's a, and there's a real disinclination to talk about the and and take seriously what you can think of as like the infrastructural work of political life, the kinds of informal conversations or semi-formal local organizations. But everything we know from, again, from social science, from political science, is that what really has a huge impact on who gets to the polls is the, the social networks that you're involved in. If you're involved in social networks within which people think, of course I'm going to vote. Of course, my vote, my voice matters, and, and it's going to make a difference, and the kind of person I am is the kind of person who's going to get to the polls and vote, and this is a moment in which people like me are getting to the polls and, and making our voices heard. So social networks are hugely important to that, and sort of semi-formal social networks are hugely informal to, important to that. As, as our informal ones, but people learn about politics in places like the carpool, uh, you know, driving your kids out to the um, travel soccer game. Uh, those are the places political conversations happen. And if there are no groups um, in your area that are, that, are, that are articulating a vision of what, for instance, a progressive politics would mean for people like you, you're not hearing about that. Maybe all you're hearing about politics is coming from the, the television. Maybe all you're hearing about politics is coming from Fox News, and that's just one particular set of viewpoints about what America looks like. So, so the media tends to underreport this sort of level of, of infrastructural, you know, day-to-day, quotidian, you know, uh, kitchen table politics, and, and sometimes use this as a shorthand to try to get at that, like, real human experience, sort of huge demographic categories. You, you mentioned that they, you know, this, some of this goes back to the, the Obama era, right, and, and his campaign. Um, do these groups, do they still see that kind of support from the, the Democratic Party, or what does, what does that relationship look like now, 10 years later? So that's a, that's a really interesting point that you're focusing us on. And, and of course, even the groups that had their origins in the Obama campaign, you'll notice that's the campaign and not the local party. So part of the story that as I've tried to sort of go back and, and reconstruct or you know, excavate what happened in these areas, in part, why, why aren't there existing groups? Why are people creating these groups, these sort of local face-to-face groups for the first time? Um, it seems like you know, a generation ago, the Democratic Party in many places had was a membership organization. Like you could join the membership, the Democratic Party. You would know people who you knew belonged to the Democratic Party, not in the sense that you belonged to an email list, but in the sense that you, you know, belong to the PTO. Like there's actually a meeting, maybe you miss some meetings, but there's an expectation that there's a place you could go. There are real human beings who, who you know, who have leadership roles, who are keeping you involved. So in most places in America, the Democratic Party really shrunk away from that existence as a local organization. Um, and didn't regrow. So the story of how much the local grassroots energy has, how they've related to local level party structures is everywhere different. In some places, there's been a, just an eager embrace by local party leaders, you know, the, um, the party leadership of the you know, Westmoreland Democratic Party or um, Beaver County Democratic Party. Um, those are places where you can see there's been a sort of an early embrace and mentorship and connection building, and and you have really revitalized um, county party committees. Mm-hmm. In other places, it's been more conflictive, and in other places, it's been just more. It's remained more separate at, at, in terms of any kind of um, formal connection between local grassroots groups and the party. But there's this really interesting process of you can sort of think of as like organizational osmosis, where in any setting, the people who are most organized almost without anyone planning it, will migrate into the, the local institutional structures that 
are, that are a good fit for the stuff they want to do. And that happens so systematically you know, cross-culturally, cross-settings, because information flows along lines of social connection. So as you get more connected, you meet more people, and you share information along your own networks about what would be the spaces or what, what are, what, where are the decision points yeah, that's that's interesting. You mentioned that that kind of osmosis process because I think these groups are are not looking to blow up the system, right? I think quite the quite the contrary, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the and you know part of that is um, just by by the life experiences of the people who have tended to be most involved in these grassroots groups. These are not bomb throwers. Again, these are it is you know retired women who have a lot of experience in working within male-dominated professional lives. Um, it's women who've got a lot of experience with mansplaining and just powering forward and getting stuff done regardless. It's, it's, and it's women, in not only women, but it's largely women who understand the value of working within a system and still working steadily for change. Right. And uh, what are some of the other challenges that, that these groups face in, in kind of trying to move the needle forward and looking to, to November and maybe even beyond that? So... I mean, one set of challenges would be around sustainability because the same kinds of, you know, flexibility that make these groups in practice agile, they can sort of jump on an issue and and say things that they really think that haven't been, you know, focus group tested 50 times and that may therefore resonate with their neighbors. But that same lack of formal structure in, in the long run can can hamper the sustaining of a, of a group. On the other hand, the fact that there's there are lots of different organizations, so they're probably... Um, 300 grassroots groups that if if I had a long enough piece of paper I could name for you in southwest Pennsylvania alone. A lot of them overlap and the um, membership overlaps to a certain extent. Um, what that means is if someone gets into, you know, a personal fight with someone else or doesn't like the style of one of these groups, there's another group they can join. So people actually do sometimes sort of drift between groups. If there was no ongoing sort of more permanent structure with more permanent rules about how we're going to make decisions and how we're going to move forward in the face of maybe some difficult discussions, I would worry more. But I think in practice, actually, in many places, the local Democratic committee structure, which was already just sitting there, although in the case of Pennsylvania, about half of the committee person seats were empty um, statewide. There's no clear statistics available on that. But in you know October 2016... Um, now, many, so be, precisely because so many people who've gotten involved in grassroots politics have also gotten themselves voted on to their local precinct committee, in practice, I think the Democratic Party local structure is sort of being reanimated. And also the fact that it has rules in place about how do you, you know, moving forward, about geographic re- representation, about, um, you know, structures for caucus representation, that sort of um, taking the role of providing a kind of organizational skeleton uh, for the energy which otherwise might you know, it, it, it's, it's not quite amorphous because, you know, there are groups that have meetings that have, um, you know, leadership positions and so on, but, but they're at a different level of formalization. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've talked on this podcast before with the, the author, Selena Zito, who has a, a different view of, of, of middle America. She's spent time in, you know, parts of, of Pennsylvania and also other states talking with mainly people in, in, in rural communities who had supported um, Barack Obama, and, but then had vo- uh, voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, do, do you think that there's room in these, these grassroots groups for, for people like that, for people who who did vote for for Donald Trump, or for maybe who watch Fox News, or are, are kind of part of that other vision of, of of Middle America, you know, I think 
there are many different middle Americas out there. And again, within any given place, there are, lot, there are different people who have different views. And that's part of why it's so interesting. And to me, it seems so important that you have groups. So let's take a case I've looked at recently in, in an area like uh, Mercer County. You've got the Democrat women of Mercer County who are powerhouses getting things done. You've got the Slippery Rock Huddle. You've got Indivisible Mercer County. Those are, those are groups that are on the ground in territories where there are probably some people who fit the kind of claim about middle America that you're hearing from Selena Zito, for instance. But there are lots of other people who live in those places that, that would not identify with that, with that caricature that you're giving. They're, they wouldn't necessarily identify with Hillary Clinton. They wouldn't necessarily identify with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, although maybe they might. If people are just complicated. And if there's no local group saying, hey, what, do, what does a progressive politics look like for us here? Then no one's going to feel themselves summoned to say, hey, that, that kind of sounds like me. Like, oh, that's, that's close enough to what I believe in that I'm going to show up and, and be part of that. So the fact that these that so many of these new grassroots groups are forming in places where there hadn't been any sort of visible local organizational life for a center, center-left politics is really important. And it's important even if elections are not won in the short run. Yeah, and that, so tying this back to, to democracy, so that your article appeared in Democracy Journal, and I'm wondering about the distinction between small-D Democrats and large-D Democrats. Is that something that you know, people in these groups are, are, are cognizant of? Is it something that, that you had kind of considered about you know, how much of, of this activity really is tied to the Democratic Party specifically and, and, and how much of it is kind of more broadly um, you're kind of supporting democracy as, as a whole, regardless of wherever politics might fall. So the groups that, that I'm describing and that Vita Scotchpol and others are studying um, are, re- are both internally and be- between the groups ideologically diverse on a lot of things. But the really consistent common denominator is a conviction that voting matters and that the structures that bar people from voting matter and that the sort of anti-democratic trends in our country really matter. The, that there's too much money in politics, that gerrymandering is an, an, a sort of an ethical wrong, whether or not it advantages your party in the short run. So, and those are those are positions like worrying about things like automatic voter registration, worrying about things like gerrymandering reform. Um, those are issues that have not, in the past, had a very organized and focused constituency. Even though they're, you know, every American. It, Democrat or Republican says, "Oh, we've got to get the money out of politics." But are people actually vote? Is there a way that people can vote for candidates who, in practice, are going to make that happen? That's been less clear. So, um, and so there's, in for instance, in Pennsylvania, there's been a substantial overlap and resonance between people getting involved in grassroots politics and groups like Fair Districts PA, groups like March on Harrisburg, and so the rise of um, the sort of organizational rise of grassroots politics for sure creates a much larger set of politically engaged people for whom issues like the sort of basic infrastructural issues of making sure that votes count within a democracy, um, those are center stage. So, so let's talk about um, uh, communication a little bit. So, you know, there, we think we're all familiar with kind of the, 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 the PTO model of you have meetings and you there's like a, a set schedule of when people get together and, and, and interact face to face. And we know that that face to face communication is, is super important. But at the same time, there's all of this organizing happening online and on social media and in, in some ways are maybe more disconnected, you know, if we're at a, a, a little league game or something maybe or out in the community, we're more likely to be looking at our phones than we are to be talking to someone so 
sitting next to us, right? So how, how are these groups um, kind of utilizing technology or what, what does their communication look like in, in 2018? So what's really clear is that um, some groups manage to become hybrids of having an online and face-to-face present in ways that are very powerful. And for sure, most grassroots groups ha- most grassroots groups will have a public Facebook page or a public web page, a private Facebook page, or, or uh, and then additionally, often a secret Facebook page, so that there are different degrees of of sort of insiderness to the conversations that are happening, and those the ability to use social media to communicate in an out to a sort of open-edged but not entirely open public and that and you know group of of interlocutors group of people who you're pulling in and then actually use that to organize a meeting where you actually do have face-to-face conversations that builds the kind of trust that means you can make you know real commitments to getting stuff done together and not take offense if you see someone saying something wacky one time on Facebook because you've gone to a protest with them you've sat up all night protesting you know like you were at a 24-hour healthcare vigil with them you're not going to take offense at some little thing that they say because you know who they are right so having the advantages of social media and of networked communication by social media those are those advantages are are made stronger and the disadvantages of social media are really mitigated if you also have face-to-face connections that's actually i think one of the most interesting impacts of the the weekly protest groups so like the where's rothfuss wednesday or tuesdays with Toomey. if you look at how impactful those have been it's not necessarily because of the people who drive by and see protests although that may have some broader impact but just knowing that okay there's this group of people who i'm organizing a bunch of different stuff with who I know where to find them every Wednesday, and I'm probably going to show up at least for half an hour every Wednesday to you know to hold a banner. But also along the way, we're going that's where we're going to be exchanging information about the next uh, you know the next step or a, someone who we heard might be recruitable as a candidate to run for state for state legislature. So those those weekly protests become really powerful sites of information exchange and of cohort building and of connection building and trust building um, without anyone having planned it that way. Right? They they end up being very important. Okay, so we're um, we're gonna close here with our uh, mood of the nation poll questions. Um, so four questions, um, thinking specifically about um, American politics. Uh, what makes you angry? Uh, what makes me angry when politicians of any uh, of, of any camp of any party write off whole whole spaces within America or whole democratic or or whole demographic categories um, because they think that they're inherently hostile to their mission. Um, people are just complicated. In any community, people are complicated. Uh, and, and conversations are always, po- it's always possible for there to be conversations that move people into a greater space of understanding of each other. That's great. And then that might actually tie into to, to our next question here. Um, what makes you proud? Well, I can say what, what makes me proud. It's been, um, it's been exciting to see... Uh, to see people stepping forward into politics and um, doing that work, even though they will never get any credit for it. So again, the 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 the, the on the one hand, the lack of recognition of the importance of you know middle-aged and gray-haired ladies doing politics. Um, uh, on the one hand, I would say that was something that makes me frustrated in in national politics today. But on the other hand, as you know, as 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 a woman rapidly hurtling through middle age herself, um, I look at you know, the, the gray-haired and civil, silver-haired ladies around me who are just absolutely taking democracy into their own hands and stepping forward into leadership roles in their communities that they never thought that they'd be playing in politics. And 
that makes me that makes me hopeful. Yeah. So um, stepping away from that for, for just yeah. a second, do you do you think that the the work that these women are doing would would be the same, or that they would do it in the same way if they got more attention from the media or from just just kind of in general? Or are they able to do what they do because they're not there's not no spotlight on them? Yeah. The, I mean, you, I do sometimes. Yeah. So I get I get letters from people who have read you know things that I've written and they or that they don't have written and say you know, thank you for seeing us. We thought no one was seeing the work that we were doing. Um, I don't very often, we don't get letters very often saying, oh, shoot, you blew our cover. So I'm, you know, maybe there's some piece of this that's like, it's good that this is happening under the radar. But, um, but no, mainly, I think, you know, in a a just world, you know, middle-aged ladies would get a little more, um, a little more attention to the political impact of the work that they do rather than having it dismissed as, oh, that's just, those are just conversations. Yeah. Well, they'll certainly certainly get it on this podcast, so <laughs> if nothing else. Um, so back to the, the uh, Mood of the Nation questions. Um, what makes you worry? What makes me worry? Um, what makes me worry? The microphones are all in the wrong hands. The megaphones are all in the wrong hands. The, the incentives within the media are to play up a narrative of disunion and radicalism and to take uh, on all sides and sort of amplify um, the the scariest and most um, exclusionary, you know, statements. Uh, and that's not what I see when I get out and actually have conversations. You know, these days I I actually do like door-to-door canvas. I'm an activist as, and organizer as well as studying these movements. And I feel like when I go out and do door-to-door canvassing, that's like the, the time I get away from politics is when I'm doing door-to-door canvassing and having conversations with real voters about candidates. That the kinds of conversations that you have can are always interesting and thoughtful, and people are complicated. And then if I go home and you know look at the news or look at Twitter, the caricature that I see of Americans' political beliefs makes me worry. And then finally, uh, what gives you hope? What what gives me hope is again it's those conversations, right? All of the the fact that. Um, the number of doors that I have knocked on and had a conversation with someone who who maybe, you know, at first glance didn't look like they were going to fit into the template of someone who would be sympathetic to X candidate or Y candidate. And, and, I, and there's always a story about where people are coming from that has so much potential overlap and, that, and, and people always have um, a possibility of listening and people are willing to listen and share their thoughts when asked by respectfully face to face by someone even by someone they don't know um so that that possibility of connection makes me hopeful wonderful well we will uh, leave it there um lara thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me okay well we're back and that was uh that was really interesting yeah I, um it, it is just it, again, it just it speaks to just how dynamic American politics is right now. You know, so what w- you know, one thing you really take away from uh, from this discussion with Lara, very different from with Selena, but you know, we've been hearing a lot about how important women are right now in the Democratic sort of the energy of the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. If you look at polls, uh, you know, certainly you see that that this is where uh, Donald Trump's lost the most support. Right, has been with educated white women. Right, and and where you see the most change in terms of um, 
Democrats running for office, right? Yeah, that's and right. winning office for that matter. That's right. And as we'll talk about a little later, we have a really nice podcast on that coming up just next week mm-hmm. as, as uh, follows uh, really well on this. But I mean, with Lara, I think this is such a cool look at this women's activism that we've been hearing about because, you know, most of the women, most of the people they're talking about are women. These groups formed in the, uh, you know, I guess initially in the Women's March, she said a lot of them met right on the bus down right. and got back, continuing to talk about it. But but also that they were people that maybe had been involved previously. Yeah. And Hillary's campaign. Hillary's campaign. And, well, let's talk a little bit about how the, the people that, uh, you know, how this energy on the left differs from the energy that Selena is describing on the right. By, let me just start by saying that I think there's some interesting similarities, mm-hmm. right? I mean, she said that these women, you know, many um, grandmothers, I this is not the country I want to leave to my grandchildren, right? Yeah. So there's a sense in which both of these people are, or both of these groups are motivated by this desire to make America great again. It's just how you define that and how you understand the the status quo ante that you want to return to. That's all true, but I return to something brought up earlier. The focus is is often local, and it's Congress. It, this is not about a. This is not a group of people that are just out. How do we get rid of Trump? How do we get rid of Trump? And, and in fact, it's. I think it's a much more. Uh, it, it's a much more experienced, a much more mature viewpoint, which is. This has to start at the local level. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a more fundamental reordering right. of what politics have of what politics have been about. And I, I, I mean, I think there's something really, really interesting that they've caught onto here in this sort of very nuanced look at uh, what's going on within communities. And that's the way that you know, in response to things that make people angry or hurt or upset or uh, Distraught that they can organize and respond. Actually, that reminds me of something that um, that really struck me as interesting and important about what uh, Laura said was, which was that that um, there is this um, organizing plus, right? You have this face-to-face organizing, which she makes very clear is just the the one indispensable dimension of any kind of successful democratic politics, democratic small d. But then on top of that, there is this um, use of social media and of Facebook and email that that um, doesn't replace it. It just um, empowers it and makes it more uh, makes it easier and more uh, fast right. and and therefore more powerful. And I think that is a really interesting. Um, insight in this post, you know, bowling alone kind of world we're living in. Yes, yes. And and, and maybe a little along those lines, but also, uh, you know, something that I think she's capturing here is that politics is more than just about people getting the issue, getting their preferences met politically. I mean, it's awkwardly phrased, but there's something experiential right. about participating in politics. And communal. And communal and, about and, it. And it's not the horse race. To it's yeah, not the horse that's race. Right. But it is it is a um something that for us and for the you know, for for a for a podcast that's called Democracy Works, it's a really important point to bring up that that there is something humanizing about politics there's something that that um connects us on a on a really um important and yeah. an emotional level 
we're we're um, we're bringing this in for a landing. Uh, so if any of you all want to, you know, we would love to hear from you what it is that you find interesting, what you want us to to focus on. Love to love to know that. Yes, absolutely. We would love to have more feedback and. Uh, more sense of community of yeah, who's, yeah, who's out there mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so let us know what you think. Let us know what we could be talking about. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned before be, it, it would be helpful if you could go and uh, and give us some stars or like us. And yeah, because, just, because that helps to turn that, – that helps – to promote the podcast to other people. That just exposes us to people yeah. who might be interested. We're not, you know, it, it, we're, we have no advertising, so it doesn't matter in that way. But but it would just make it make us more, um, get us more out there to people who might find it interesting. So yes, all right. So um, that's enough for today, and enough 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 uh, sales work. So all right. um, thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman, and this has been Democracy Works. Mm-hmm.